We're in Genesis 1 again this morning, if you want to turn there. We're kind of parked there, and we're in the third of a series on the creation account, particularly though that of, of man, Adam and Eve. If you've been here over the last month or so, you know we started this. This portion talking about kind of the general ways in which man was the image bearer of God. And we look more specifically about the command to fill the earth, that is to reproduce and fill the earth, and the image bearing issues there. This morning we're winding down on man's creation with this additional way in which man was meant to bear the image of God. And it has to do with man ruling and subduing the earth. And by the way, let me say before I get started, this is a two things actually. Part of the difficulty with teaching through a text like Genesis, opening chapters in the Bible, is because the things that start here, they don't end here, but they, they become topics or issues that are brought up again and again throughout the scriptures. And they affect your life and mine in ways not limited to the original text or time. So you look at one thing there and you realize you can't stay there when you teach. You've got to take that down the road and say, what did that mean? What does that mean? What will that mean? So one of the difficulties, one of the things that makes teaching passages like this go on, sometimes and on and sometimes on, is that you're trying to cover bases. You're simply trying to do justice to the themes that are brought up. The other thing is this, uh, we're touching on something that is a hot button politically, both in the United States and throughout the world, when we're talking about man's effect and impact and interaction on the earth and on the globe physically. And so I'm talking about things like global warming, climate change, pollution, etc. I'm just warning you on the front end of this, I'm not going to talk much about those things. Um, political hot buttons, and I'm not uh, trying to skew them to avoid trouble. The truth is, I don't know enough about these things, nor am I inclined enough. I don't feel like it's where I need to spend the capital, the time I have with you guys on Sunday morning. I'll mention some things later that you can look additional information up on. But we're going to treat this issue of man's ruling the earth, man's impact on the earth, God's call to man to bear his image on the earth as a ruler, kind of broadly, and we'll see it in its context in Genesis 1, We'll go a little further than that, and we'll go to the end of time. We'll be Genesis to Revelation this morning on this one theme, so that's where we're going. Back in Genesis 1, verses 26 through 31, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the livestock, over all the earth, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth, all the birds of the air, all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he made. It was very good. There was evening and there was morning the sixth day. 
part of the way that we bear the image of God, mankind on the earth bears the image of God, is that God, the ultimate ruler, made man a ruler. God's the ultimate ruler, and part of the way we bear his image is that he made us rulers on the earth as well. You know, if you listen to news, if you read any magazines, etc., that environmentalists, and among them Christians, uh, often portray the desired uh, relationship of man on the earth as man is a caretaker. The earth, creation, is the primary thing, and we should be here as those who, in, in essence, do no harm. That is, the earth is the key thing, and man's the servant, man's the caretaker. Uh, the problem with this point of view is it simply isn't in the text. It's not in the text. If you remember we said in the creation week, the apex, the height of creation, doesn't come until man is created. It's not until God has put his representative on the earth that creation is perfect or complete. The point of view that you often hear today that man should be the servant of the earth has things upside down. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. But just start by looking at the words that God calls on man to represent him on the earth. The first one, rule, used in verse 26 and verse 28 is the Hebrew radah. This is its use. It means to tread down, to subdue to overcome, to enslave, to be brought under control, or to subjugate. And these are the uses, radaj, used in the rest of the Old Testament. To rule, to direct, it's used of government officials, leading. It's used of kings. It's used of Messiah's rule. It's the forceful exercise of authority. If you look at the Hebrew word in verse 28 for subdue, uh, kabosh. If you put the kabosh on something, I don't know if that's from the Hebrew or not, but anyway, that's the way it sounds, kabosh. Very similar in meaning, it means also to tread down, to rule over, to cause, to dominate. Its uses in the Old Testament are to overcome, to enslave, to bring under control, to subjugate. It's used of the promised land was meant to be subdued. Same word. David subdued his enemies. Israelite women were subdued as slaves during the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Just to say, when God tells man to rule the earth... In Genesis 1, they're forceful words. If someone tells you that these are meant to say these are caregiver words, these are the earth is the important, and you're serving the earth, that is not what you get out of Genesis 1. God, the ruler of the universe, says to man, you are my ruler on the earth, and you are to rule and subdue the earth in my name, bearing my image. Very strong words, that's the meaning in Genesis 1. So contrary to the teaching of evolution today and certainly most of the environmental arguments, man is not the most sophisticated of the accidental life forms on earth and therefore he's not the happy servant of Mother Earth. But by God's doing, man is the appointed ruler. He's the prince of the world because that's what God made him. In his image, man's called to rule the earth as God's designate and as his image bearer. Remember, there's no sin yet. There's nothing wrong with what's happening here. This is God's plan. And so God's command to Adam and Eve is that they're to take the good, remember he says here at the end, the very good earth he's created, and they're to tame it. They're to put, in essence, their stamp on it as they rule it, as they subdue the earth to their will by God's doing. So some, some analogies in my mind that help me kind of put this into practice or, or give some kind of uh, vision of this 
A cowboy takes a Mustang and he breaks it, he subdues it, he rules it so that the Mustang becomes productive, if you will. That's something along the lines of what God was calling man to do with the earth. Or a potter takes a lump of clay. It's an unformed piece of clay, puts it on the wheel, and he puts his power and force against that clay, and he shapes it into something. It's, it's rough, there's nothing wrong with the clay, but he takes it and shapes it. And man's called to, to take and to press and to shape the rough clay of creation and put his stamp on it. Or if you think of someone building a home, they take a variety of elements and they put something together. That's, that was man's call to what he was to do on the earth. Same thing or, or similar things. Man didn't occupy the role of earth shaper by accident. And you and I as humans on the earth bearing God's image still will qualify all of this in a minute, but still called to rule the earth in certain ways. We don't have to apologize to ourselves or to others that we have an impact on the earth. We were called to. There's some downside to that, obviously, but we were called to be earth rulers, not earth servants, earth rulers. Man subduing and ruling the earth is one of the key ways God said we would bear his image. God the ruler calling us to be sub-rulers under him. When you read especially Christian literature that calls you to be sensitive to uh, your impact on the environment, uh, you won't hear Genesis 1, you'll hear Genesis 2.15, and we'll look more at Genesis 2 later, but it's a fuller development of the creation of man on the earth. And there, God tells Adam and Eve in the garden, he says to them, to cultivate and keep the Garden of Eden. To cultivate and keep. Depending on the translation you have, you'll get some different words in there. But cultivate, to dress, to work, to till, to plow. Could even be used to worship. And to keep, to hedge, to guard, to protect, to attend, to preserve. Always have this thought, though, of change and order. Change with order. Uh, Genesis 2.15, sounding a softer command. They're in the garden, and God says, keep and cultivate it, work it, protect it, attend it. Uh, John Salehammer thinks these terms are meant to be worship and obey God within the garden. So there's a little bit more diverse uh, potential meaning in Genesis 2.15. But remember, Genesis 2.15 doesn't reinterpret Genesis 1. And Genesis 1 is God saying what man is to do over all the earth. Genesis 2.15 is God's command more specifically within the Garden of Eden. So Genesis 2.15, a similar command, a little softer it sounds, but that doesn't rewrite Genesis 1, this command to be in God's image a ruler and a subduer of the earth. When you see artists shaping various mediums, they are ruling over those mediums. Or if a painter lays down layers of color, they are ruling or subduing those mediums for artistic sake. If you see a designer creating new clothing, it's similar. They're ruling over these elements. They're creating something new from them. If a person plants a garden or if they install a pond, they're ruling over and subduing the earth. If a wife or a mother rearranges her home. I'm serious. If she, the place under her responsibility, she's ruling the area she has responsibility for. She's bearing the image of God in ruling over her home and her environment. When we regrade mountains today or reshape areas of forests, 
so that people have a place to live or a means of transportation. These are not inherently deficient things. These are man ruling and subduing the environment, the creation that God called us to. When we irrigate dry, uh, dry lands so that farmers can produce efficiently more food to feed the world, this is man ruling and subduing the earth. There's nothing inherently wrong with any of these. This was God's call in creation. Rule and subdue. Strong words, meaning we have an impact on the world around us. We don't apologize for this. This is God's call to us to bear His image on the earth today. Now, you guys know, as soon as I'm talking about this stuff, you've got to qualify everything now, don't you? Because we're not in the Garden of Eden. And because our impact on the world has changed from what it would have been then. Uh, sin, uh, the bottom line, of course, is that sin got in the way, and that's changed everything. When God gave this command in Genesis 1, there's no sin. Man's a, man's a vegetarian. There's no death on the earth. And so God tells his, his perfect representatives on the earth, innocent representatives on the earth, on his perfect creation to rule and subdue. And so, you know, apart from sin, if, if life had gone on from that point, uninterrupted by sin, who knows what the world would look like today? Uh, Adam and Eve would have reproduced. Their kids would have expanded out of the Garden of Eden and they would have started doing this. They would have made, ideally, the rest of the world like the Garden of Eden as they expanded out. That perfect sphere God put Adam and Eve in would then grow as, as their children reproduced and filled the earth. It's hard to say. I, I'm not an imaginative person particularly. I have no idea what such a world by perfect people reflecting God's good image would look like on the earth today. What would that mean? I have no idea, none at all. Uh, it didn't happen, did it? didn't happen. So this call to rule the world got changed. We're still ruling and subduing the world today, but the way that works out has changed drastically. Why is that? What happened? And this, of course, is where sin comes in. Adam and Eve were called to be perfect. One prohibition, don't eat the fruit off that tree. Of course, Satan tempts Eve. She eats. Adam follows suit. And they sin. And so now this good and perfect world God created, it's turned upside down. Remember that in this, you've got the introduction of this outside persona, Satan, not seen in the creation account, who comes in and tempts Eve. You know, Satan's behind the temptation and the sin. And of course, Satan, it's not in the Genesis passage here, but Satan is trying to use planet Earth and Adam and Eve against God because Satan is a usurper, he's a rebel, and he's trying to promote his rebellion now on the earth. And so he's behind that. So the perfect world and the perfect reproduction of God's image in subduing the world gets crashed. Satan has significant success in disrupting God's plan for man, his representative, ruling and subduing the earth. Now, it's not related in this text in Genesis, but part of what happens in the temptation in the fall is this. When Adam and Eve choose to follow Satan, that is when they choose to believe his word against God's, when they choose to align themselves with him instead of with God through disobedience, they in effect bring the authority they have to rule the earth to Satan. Some significant sense, man's call, man's authority from God to rule and subdue the earth was given to Satan in the fall. Again, it's not stated in this text, let me share just a few verses, though. If you look through the rest of the Bible and systematic theology, one thing does lead to another, and this is what you get. Daniel 10, there's many more passages in this. This is just a few. 
In Daniel 10, verses 13 and 21, when God sent an angelic messenger to Daniel, this angelic messenger from heaven got disrupted. He had trouble getting down to Daniel because the prince of Persia withstood him. And if you're reading Daniel, you've got to ask yourself, who's the prince of Persia? Well, it's not a man. It's not a human being. From heaven's vantage point, looking down on the earth at the kingdom of Persia, Persia wasn't ruled by the Persian king. Persia was ruled by a demon. And this is true, by the way, of the accounts in, I think it's Daniel 7, 9, 10, and 11. The, the rulers of the world are actually, if you will, under these demonic entities. And it's the demonic entities that are calling the shots in what kingdom rises and what kingdom falls. This isn't ultimately, we'll see this in just a second. But when heaven sends a messenger to Daniel on earth, he is obstructed by what God calls the prince of Persia, a demonic entity overseeing the kingdom of Persia. If you go to Matthew 4, the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, one of the temptations, Satan directly tempting Jesus in the wilderness, and remember Jesus is the second Adam, he's like Adam in, uh, in the garden, he's being tempted, he's going to pass the test, but one of the temptations is, Jesus, if you'll bow down and worship me, I will give you the kingdoms of this world. Satan believed that he had the authority to give to Jesus the kingdoms of this world. And Jesus does not quibble on this point. He doesn't say they're not yours to give. They're Adam's or Adam's descendants. He doesn't say that at all. He rebukes Satan, doesn't fall for the temptation. But he doesn't say the kingdoms weren't Satan's to give. Satan, later Paul says in Ephesians 2, is the prince or the ruler of the power of the air on this earth. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Satan is called the god of this world, the ruler of this world who has the power to blind people's minds to truth. What I'm getting at, <clears throat> long way around the block perhaps, is this. When Adam and Eve sinned, they gave their authority to rule in some significant sense to Satan. And Satan has this very significant rule, this very significant role in overseeing the way life takes place on this earth. So our call to rule is now underneath Satan's power and authority. And that's a big reason why things went wrong with the fall. God is still the ultimate ruler of the universe because he's omnipotent. So nothing can happen unless he causes or allows it. So we're not saying God's not ultimately in control. Also, Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection regained, if you will, the authority over the heavens and the earth. And we'll talk more about this in just a minute as well. Jesus has regained as the second Adam through his death and resurrection, he's regained the authority to rule the earth. So it's not inherently any longer Satan's because Adam gave it to Satan. Jesus has redeemed that authority back to himself. This is the thing, though. He's not exercised that authority. Jesus sits in heaven today at the Father's right hand. He has not come back to exercise that authority fully. He'll tell us later what to do with the authority he has in heaven and earth. But for now, he sits in heaven and we're his representatives on the earth. But he hasn't come back and kicked Satan out. So Satan still has this very significant role as the ruler and the subjugator of the earth. The role we were called to fill now, in a significant way, Satan has over us. Today, we are sharecroppers 
under an evil manager who is himself under rebellion against the, the legal, the rightful landowner. That's our role today. Our ability to rule and subdue the earth is severely compromised. All of our ruling, all of our subduing the earth is influenced now by at least three things. You could probably think of others, but Satan's evil influence, our own sinful influence, in, impulses, and the third is the futility that is part of the curse. We'll only mention that one briefly here in a minute. But first, in John 10, when Jesus is describing himself, he says, hey, I've come to give you life and give you lots of it. But the thief, in this case Satan, he is a liar. He comes to rob, kill, and destroy. And so Satan's influence as a ruler and a subduer of the earth is to rob, kill, and destroy. Whether or not you and I can put our thumb or point our finger exactly at what his influence is, the overarching influence he has related to our ruling the world and interacting with the world around us, it's to bring about death. He lies, kills, and destroys. So we don't see most of what Satan is doing. We simply see its impact. We see the effect of his rule. So nations failing to cooperate with each other, sometimes when it looks like it's in their best interest to do so. I assume Satan's behind that. Um, Satan often shapes our own best efforts in ways that actually work against our call to rule the world. I'm not thinking of specifics here, but just the underlying influence he has on us. On us. And because he's a liar and deals in death, that's his influence, generally speaking, on us as we seek to rule and subdue the earth in a way that honors God, Satan influence on us, over us, it dilutes that, it affects that, it brings death to that. He's behind the scenes, he's twisting, you know, we live in the world system, the cosmos that he's the ruler of, and so everything gets twisted under his oversight. So our call to rule is affected because Satan is still significantly ruling and subduing the earth. We, of course, we don't need outside help to, uh, to muddle this call to rule up because of our own sinful impulses also. And, you know, one of the easy things to say here is just that we're selfish beings and we want stuff and then we want more stuff. You know, I'm in lots and lots of houses all the time in my work. And you know what I can tell you? Americans accumulate stuff. You know, there's some security in that. If your parents went through the Depression, they don't throw things away because you don't know where your next meal is coming from or you might need that. But you know, that's not true in our generation. We just, we get stuff and more stuff and more stuff. You know, Solomon said, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, the ear is not satisfied with hearing. We tend to be lustful, greedy people in a sense because we're trying to substitute things for God. So we accumulate things and we buy things. And of course, all this consumerism, it adds up. It has an impact on the world around us. It means we're, we're manufacturing more things. We're creating more pollution, more waste, more trash, etc., etc., because we simply are after more stuff. We manipulate the world in destructive ways. Sometimes, uh, oftentimes, it's not what we're trying to do, but we do. We hurt people. We hurt animals. We hurt landscapes that... We should be a blessing to. And if we were back with Adam and Eve and still sin less, that's what our impact would be. would be beneficial, but it's often obviously not. Sin negatively impacts our oversight over people, animals, the planet. Our call to rule now, typically we're after things in a sinful way that have negative impacts on the places and the people around us. 
And the third thing is our call to rule is frustrated uh, because God cursed the earth. He cursed the earth because of man's sin. So now when I want to rule my yard and I plant flowers, weeds come up. My land doesn't cooperate with me when I seek to rule and subdue it and make it do what I want it to do because God cursed it. And we'll look more at that later when we get to the passage in the fall. But needless to say at this point, there's this original call to rule and subdue the the earth. We cave, we sin, and now our call to rule, it's marred. And everything we do gets twisted, distorted, perverted in some way or another so that the effect we have on the planet in mirroring God's image in our call to rule is all twisted and distorted. When Jesus came back and died on the cross and rose from the dead, before he left, he told his disciples this in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth is mine. All authority in heaven and earth is mine. That means ultimately, really now, Satan does not have legitimate rule over this earth. Jesus has regained that through his death and resurrection. But he chooses at this point to sit in heaven, not not fulfilling his authority by coming back to the earth and rest power away from Satan. He has the authority to do so. He's not exercised that yet. But when he talks to his disciples before he leaves, and he says, I have all authority, he doesn't say, rule and subdue the earth. He doesn't go back to Genesis 1. He says, do this. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. In other words, your call in mind today as Christians post-resurrection is not the same as Adam's and Eve's in Genesis 1. We are under a different mandate. We have a different call. The Christian's call on this earth is not to rule and subdue the world anymore. Jesus says, I've got the authority, and I'm not telling you to rule the world now. This is what I'm telling you to do. You make disciples. You go through all the earth, and you make followers of me, and you teach them to obey. This planet, Peter says in 2 Pete, is going the way of all the earth. It's going to burn up. It's going to be a cinder. So Jesus, it's almost as if he says, don't worry too much about planet earth, because it's going down the drain anyway. But people aren't. People last forever, and so with the authority of heaven and earth that I have, this is what I'm telling you to do. He doesn't say rule the world. He doesn't say subdue the world. He says make disciples, make people followers of me, introduce people to me and to life. Introduce people to me and to life. The authority you and I live under today as Christians and as members of the church isn't to rule the world. It's to be part of the process God's at in calling men and women out of every nation, tribe, tongue, and kindred to himself. In whatever sense you think you are environmentally conscious or an ecologist or a good ruler, if you're not sharing Christ with others, you are not fulfilling the mandate God gave us to fulfill. So whatever you think about the environment, good, bad, ugly, Your first ecology, if you will, is to share the gospel with others. That's the mandate the church is under. We're not ruling the world. We're ambassadors for Christ. We're calling men and women to life through Christ. 
Having said that, we're also in the world. So we're living here. And we still have responsibilities. If you go to Acts 5, the early church, uh, the early church when people got saved in Jerusalem and they stayed there longer than they thought they would. They ran out of resources. And so there's all these folks and we've got to do something with them. And so some of the Christians in Jerusalem were selling their goods, giving the money to the apostles, distributing to those people around them. So their needs were met. A couple named Ananias and Sapphira did that as well. The thing with them was they, they lied about it. They simply wanted to appear important. So they, they sold their land. They took the money. They told the apostles they gave, were giving them all the money from the sale of the land. They didn't. And, and that became an issue, and that's why it's recorded. But Peter said this in Acts 5.4, While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not under your control? Peter says, Ananias, look, it's your land. You can do with it as you please. You're responsible for it. It's yours. If you want to give some of it to the church, it's yours to do with as you see fit. If you want to give all of it to the church, you can do that. If you want to give none of it to the church, you can do that. It's yours. You're responsible for it. You and I today, not called to rule the world, are still called, though, to be responsible with the things God puts under our control. So whatever you own, the, the children you raise, the houses you live in, the jobs you work at, etc., the things under your purview, under your domain, under your hand, under your control, you're responsible for. And there's several passages, Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5, arguably Revelation 22 as well, that tell us that as Christians, when we finish this life on the earth, we're going to stand before Jesus Christ. He's going to judge our lives. And we'll be like those stewards that give an account to our master for what we did with what he entrusted us. He's entrusted me this. I'm supposed to use that. I'm supposed to oversee that in a way that serves his purposes. So you and I, with the things that we are responsible for, we're going to give an account to Christ. So in that sense, we're still called to be rulers, subduers, if you will. We're called to be responsible with the things, the people, the places, the resources that God puts under our hand. P.J. O'Rourke uh, said this, a statement I've repeated at my house oftentimes, everyone wants to save the world, nobody wants to help mom with the dishes. Whatever your view of good ecology, good interaction on the earth is, uh, do this, do the dishes. That is, whatever the small things in your life are, that you can be a good steward before God and have a, a beneficial impact on the larger world around you, do those. You and I may not be able to impact uh, the Kyoto Treaty or greenhouse emissions in some earth-changing way. But, you know, we can do our own dishes. And that means things like we can take care of the house we live in. We can take care of the yard we live in. We can do small little things that cumulatively have a beneficial impact. Uh, you remember years ago, the Forest Service signs had the little owl that said, give a hoot, don't pollute. You know, we can do little things. We can take care of our own trash. We can, to the degrees we're able to, we can minimize our own waste. We can be careful in the ways we apply pesticides, you know, fertilizers, etc., things that can have a detrimental effect on the larger world around us. We can be responsible for those things. They're little things. They're doing the dishes things. But it's us being responsible with the areas of life that we really do have rule over, that we really do have responsibility over. 
If you look at the larger world around you, and by the way, if you go to the Evangelical Environmental Network as a website, creationcare.org, you can read a lot of stuff from a Christian uh, perspective. Uh, I tell you, you'll probably agree with some things as I did and not agree with other things as I didn't with the things they're sharing on their website. But it's a Christian viewpoint of the larger things. One of the things you know, if you look at the impact of man on the earth, there's a lot of downside. That is, our, the, the rule that we've exercised under Satan, no doubt influenced by him and our own sinful impulses, there's a downside. So there are uh, streams and rivers that don't have life. There are dead zones in the ocean. Uh, there's air pollution. Uh, it's, it's a big issue, you know. These aren't just political hot buttons. They're real issues in the world around us. You don't have to become a leaf-wearing environmentalist to want to do something good for the environment or to have a beneficial impact on the environment. You don't have to become a political leftist to say, I want my impact on the earth to be beneficial and not otherwise. Uh, there's a lot of contention on this stuff. You guys, if you listen to the radio, read the newspapers, etc., you know that. Uh, is the world really warming? Um, if so, is it really warming because of uh, man's uh, greenhouse emissions? Uh, now, most, the, most scientists say yes. Many scientists say no. Um, I don't know. That's why I said in this area, I'm, I'm not going to address much of this this morning. I do want to say this, though. There's trade-offs to everything we do. And generally, the negative impact man has on the world is not an intention it's an unintended consequence of generally good things we're pursuing. So think about this. The steel mill that helps produce cars for transportation that get you and I around, uh, steel beams for homes, homes you and I live in, and ships that move produce around the world also emits pollution. So you've got this balancing act. We are pursuing something good. We're pursuing transportation for people. We're pursuing a means of moving goods and services around the world. There's an unintended consequence. There's pollution as part of that. How much good outweighs how much bad? How much of the good side outweighs how much of the pollution? Think of this also, in Kansas especially. The farmer who uses pesticides and fertilizers on their fields so that they can more efficiently grow crops that feed you and me and the Midwest and, and maybe go to feed starving Christians in Darfur, that also produces runoff into those streams. And down line, you get enough of that accumulated, it kills the animal and plant life. It's not intended. It's an unintended consequence. So then you ask the question, how much food, how much efficient production of food is worth how much pollution, how much death in the rivers. You know, ultimately we'd say we don't want any downside, but that's not the world we live in. It's like talking about the Iraq war. It's not 2000, it's 2007, and we're not rehashing old decisions. This is the world we live in. How do we balance one thing and another? These are political issues, they're international issues, they're huge things that you and I may or may not have much impact on. But at least we can do the small things within our own world that make a difference. And that's at least is what we're called to. You guys can study up yourselves and see what you come to conclusions on, global warming, etc. That's past what I'm going to try and resolve this morning. 
So we went from the Garden of Eden, perfect, we're rulers, bearing God's image, we blow it through sin, and really the rest of the history of the world is of this very imperfect, very harmful at times, uh, effect of man's rule, Satan's influence on the world since. But there's an upside here, and it's this. God's giving us a second chance. Uh, We blew it as rulers the first time. But you know, the truth is, your future and mine, anyone who's believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, your future is as nothing less than the ruler of the universe. Is this staggering? You know, the lowest among us, the least intellectually astute, you know, the least suave or capable or competent, who's trusted in Christ, you're the future ruler of the universe. This could be scary if you weren't doing it with Christ on his throne. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, he says to Christians who are squabbling with each other about little things and they're taking their matters to court, Paul says to them, don't you know that you will judge the angels? If you're a Christian, do you know you will sit in judgment on angels in the future? You won't be under demonic influence. You'll be ruling and judging angels. Revelation 3.21, by the way, this is a promise made to a church that looks like the church in the United States and the West today. This is the promise given to the church at Laodicea, a church that was sickening to Christ in their lukewarm spirituality. The promise at the end of that epistle is, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Jesus says, to the least of us as Christians. You're going to sit on my throne. My throne is my Father's throne. You're going to rule the universe with me. Revelation 22, 5, in the future when there's no sun because God illumines the new heavens and new earth, it says they, the saints, will reign forever and ever. This is the the incredible thing about redemption. You and I were made creatures on the earth, rulers bearing God's image. We fell. And God could have left us there, or he he could have redeemed us at some lesser level. But when he redeems us, he makes us from creatures to his own children, and he makes us from sub-rulers to rulers with him over the new heavens and the new earth forever. So we're headed for ruling in which we'll get it right, and we'll be there with Jesus doing things right, bearing his image perfectly, remade perfectly in his image. So... We didn't do so well the first time. We've made a muddled mess of it since. But our future call as rulers is a much brighter promise. Winding down on this passage, God saw all that he had made. It was very good. There was evening. There was morning. The sixth day, God's original creation, no deficiency in it whatsoever. No death. Adam and Eve, God's image bearers, happy on the earth. He created our future, of course, at this point we know, with the second Adam in heaven, forever, ruling and reigning with him. Let's pray. Lord, we will thank you for eternity that you not only saved us, but raised us up into your very image, uh, that you deign not only to become one of us, but then to make us, in a sense, one of you, your co-ruler. Father, we know where this planet goes. It burns up. It's like a scroll that's rolled up. It's a garment that's thrown away because your purposes for it will be fulfilled. But there's a new heaven 
and new earth coming. And I pray that we as your church, as members of the body of Christ, take the authority you've given us seriously to call out disciples to you, to see folks enter eternal life so that they will live and reign with you forever. Father, while we're here, help us to exercise stewardship in a way that honors you, that does reflect your image to the world around us. Help us to be serious about ruling in the at least small areas of this earth that we're responsible for today. And Lord, help us to do that in a way that you can bless and reward in the future. Where we commit ourselves, we commit the church, we commit this world and our futures to you. In Jesus' name, amen.